This episode is sponsored by LifeAid. Now, LifeAid has several products, one of which I want to highlight because it's so pertinent to you, the sleep-deprived audience. Their product, FocusAid, is a healthy alternative to the energy drinks that I see so many of us relying on because we are exhausted. There's no other way of putting it. These energy drinks that I've seen are putting our men and women into hospitals with arrhythmias, GI distress, adding to anxiety, certainly affecting mental health. So what FocusAid has done is they've removed all the terrible ingredients and used natural, healthy ingredients, natural sweeteners, and replaced the high levels of caffeine with a nootropic. And what a nootropic is, is a supplement for your brain. As a first responder, I can attest that this then allows you to be alert on a call, but when it is time to rest, to go to bed, whether it's the end of the shift, whether it's after a call, you're actually able to not only sleep, but get a better quality of sleep as well. So an incredible product I urge you guys to try, and LifeAid has reached out to you, the audience, to offer you a discount of 15% if you use the discount code SHIELD at lifeaidbevco.com. So that's L-I-F-E-A-I-D-B-E-V-C-O.com. Use the code SHIELD, which is S-H-I-E-L-D, and please try this. It's going to end up being less expensive than the drinks that you're using And I'm telling you right now, it's an incredible product. And please reach out and let me know what you think. This episode is brought to you by 5.11 Tactical, a company that I've used for over a decade since they supplied the uniforms for Anaheim Fire when I worked out in California. And they have partnered with the Behind the Shield podcast to offer you, the listener, 15% off not just a single purchase, but an ongoing discount every time you shop at 511tactical.com. And I will give you the discount code in a moment. I just want to go on a kind of product focus for a second. In episode 125 of Behind the Shield podcast, I spoke to podiatrist Dr. Mike Donato, um, and we discussed a concern that I've had, which is the footwear uh, for first responders. If you're a firefighter, obviously, if we're doing an extrication, if we're fighting fire, our bunker boots are definitely the best things. They offer a high level of protection. But the day-to-day calls, the EMS calls, all those kind of areas, they are absolutely overkill, some of the boots that we are being given. And I wanted to find a kind of happy medium between protection and comfort as a lot of these heavy, heavy boots are causing uh, overuse injuries, knee pain, ankle pain, back pain. And 5.11 Tactical has come up with a shoe called the Norris Sneaker. Now, this has the feel literally of, of a skate shoe. It's incredibly comfortable. It has puncture protection on the bottom. It has the toe protection on the front, but they've taken a lot of the weight away and made it far more comfortable. And I think many of us will admit that as an alternative to duty boots, we turn to sneakers, which are also very comfortable, really don't offer any protection. So this is a great happy medium between the two. If you want to see this, as I said, it's called the Norris, N-O-R-R-I-S, sneaker. Go to 511 Tactical, and that discount code that I was talking about is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. That will be applicable for all of your purchases. The only time that's not going to work is when they have an additional sale that's actually going to be higher. So if they're offering a 20% or 25% off, obviously that 15 is going to be invalid because you're going to get even more off. So for the Norris sneaker and all the other things that I'm going to showcase that I personally use, I'm not going to start talking about things that I don't use, but the products of theirs that I think they're amazing, um, go to 511 Tactical, put in Shield 15, and save 15% every single time. Welcome, guys, to episode 263 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name's James Gearing, and this week I am so excited to welcome onto the show Chris Hinshaw. 
Now, Chris is not only an elite triathlete and Ironman champion, he also coaches some of the most elite athletes on the planet, including fellow firefighter Rich Froning and multiple other CrossFit Games champions. So what really blew me away was Chris is extremely passionate about our profession, about tactical athletes. So we really delve into the tactical athlete space from an elite sports athlete perspective. And an area that we discuss is recovery. Uh, he has a new philosophy capacity ward, which I think is going to resonate very deeply with you regarding the fact that times we need to be very explosive and then we have to have active recovery periods, whether it's after forcing a door, whether it's after a pursuit, whatever it is applicable to your profession. But there is no end to our competition. It ends when the scene is finally safe. So before we get to the interview, as I always say, please take a moment, go to whichever app you are listening to this podcast on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I love reading your feedback. And then most importantly, leave a rating. Five star is the most powerful. The more five star ratings we get, the more visible this podcast is to everyone else on planet Earth who's looking for a project like this. And then take social media and do something good with it. Share these episodes, share this incredible knowledge, this free library that we have now so that anyone in any country on this crazy rock that's spinning through the universe that we live on is able to access these amazing stories. So with that being said, I introduce to you Chris Hinshaw. Enjoy. Well, Chris, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast to speak to the first responders and military of the world. Thank you. This has been something that we've been in the talks about for a long time, so it's exciting for me too. Brilliant. I can't wait. Um, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? Uh, today I am in Cookville, Tennessee. I've, I'm finally back home after being on the road for about six weeks. Brilliant. Now, I know Cookville and the CrossFit world is known also as uh, Rich Froning's hometown. Was there any correlation or was it coincidence that you ended up in the same place? So, I'm a California native, uh, third generation, and uh, I have three kids and all three of them are grown up uh, out of the house. And interestingly enough, uh, where we live just south of San Francisco, um, it's a it's the same town that Facebook is in. Uh, we got a knock on the door and someone wanted to buy our house. And so um, made the decision that there's nothing really keeping us in California. And California is an incredibly expensive state to live. And um, Rich Froning, with his hospitality and the frequency that I've been coming to Cookville, uh, just made it an easy choice. And so after 23 years in the same house, just packed up and uh, moved to Tennessee. Wow, what a cool story. Brilliant. All right, well then, I love to chronologically start at the very beginning. So you mentioned your family. Where were you born and what was your family dynamic like? So I was born in Mountain View, California, um, born into a very competitive household. Um, my father was uh, mostly uh, involved in the sport of swimming. Um, as I got older, he was in master's swimming and held at one point in time because of age groups somewhere around 20 world records. Um, he uh, swam with the age group swimmers uh, while building his career. 
Um, work ethic was something that he really demonstrated and I learned early on. Um, there's no gifts. It just takes a lot of hard work. And um, he was a really, really good role model for, for all the kids. And because of that, uh, I grew up in a household of, of very talented, very smart siblings. And um, I had a lot of success as an athlete, but um, it was equivalent to what my, my brother and my two sisters had uh, as well. Now, what did your mother do? My mom was a stay-at-home mom. Um, she probably, you know, she was the one that held everybody together. Um, she was the one that ran the house. Um, you know, four kids. Um, it was a lot. I don't even know how she survived. Um, we were a, a dynamic group of kids, and she was the one that really was the glue that held everything together, uh, allowed my dad to you know, obviously build his career. And um, uh, then um, she was you know, very instrumental in, in goal setting and, and planning and, and very actively involved. Right. Now, you said uh, building his career. Was swimming something he actually did as a career, or was there another career parallel to his success in sport? No, he was an attorney, um, uh, practicing uh, trial lawyer, um, medical malpractice defense work, um, which was a tough position, uh, being a trial attorney. Uh, and that was the thing is, is you know, for me, uh, I would go down to the courthouse and, and watch him, um, you know, try a case. And it was a very interesting dynamic. Uh, one of the things that I do call on now as a coach is some of the things that I learned in the courtroom watching him. Uh, same thing in terms of, of, you know, the seminars that I give. There's a technique uh, to convincing a jury without actually telling them the answer. If you can get a jury actively involved in the process and empower them to make a decision, um, there is an advantage to that. So from a coaching perspective, that's trying to get the athlete to intrinsically find their own journey or their own why to whatever you're coaching them. Yeah, what you want, and, and that's the, the most important thing, is an athlete has to take some ownership and they have to be actively involved. And if, if you're always telling somebody what to do, whether it's a parent or a coach, there's some resistance there, especially with younger generation. And if you get them actively involved in the process where they're taking some ownership in the direction, the workouts, uh, then you've got them. And if you're always just, you know, pushing and pushing and telling and ordering, then they're going to have a tendency to want to look over your shoulder for something else. And that's the problem. Without retention, there's no adaptation. Yeah, it's been interesting. I've been in CrossFit about 13 years now. I started, you know, just like most people did. Someone introduced me, then I went to the main site for several years, was was laughed at by everyone watching me do it. <laughs> and then finally it became <laughs> cool and, you know, the rest is history. But um, I think that, you know, for me as a coach, and I'm, I'm a very, very part-time coach, but I do coach at my gym now. Um, as we, as, as a, a culture of coaches, especially younger coaches, started to understand you know truly what scaling was what alternate movements were it seemed like that just like you're talking then empowered each individual athlete to then start making some decisions to try and kind of uh 
self-program their own specific uh, version of whatever was up on the, the whiteboard. That is absolutely correct. I, I, I think that athletes need to, to, in order to take that ownership, they need to take some, some responsibility, take some risk and make some mistakes. And that's how you learn. You know, I, I often tell people that the, the worst workouts I program are ones that, that we don't learn anything. That's the purpose of, of training and to work out is to, to find opportunity. And, you know, in the sport of CrossFit, we don't have unlimited free time to do all the things that we should be doing. We need to be targeting the areas that maximize that adaptation in that most efficient and effective way. And that's the point of, in my opinion, workouts is to find those more efficient and effective options. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to talk about this in, in a lot more detail, but I, I know in my, my profession and, you know, law enforcement as well, it's, it's been a fight to get fitness as, as a whole to really be taken seriously. I'm, I think, I honestly think that back in the day, it just was. And then there was, I don't know exactly what happened, but there became resistance and, you know, some, some unions were even pushing against fitness standards. And, you know, there's a real kind of uh, double edged sword going on. But now it's yeah. getting, it's getting traction again. But now the, the, I think the need is just like you're saying, people to now understand how do you program for a tactical athlete? And obviously, and no two are the same either, but making us understand what will truly carry over, you know, for the most bang for the buck from a workout and what really is kind of useless for what we're expected to do out there. Yeah, it's interesting that there is a culture like with with kids now growing up that that people are putting these kids who want to play sport into an environment where everybody wins and it creates this 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 invincibility that kids feel and then they get out in the real world and they're they're humbled and it doesn't seem fair and and what's interesting about, um, you know, in the firefighting and tactical side of things is that this, this, this lack of judgment, that this insecurity that people have because they have lost their fitness, it, it follows somewhat the same parallel. The reality is, is that we're all different, you know, whether it's we've lost our fitness or it's a genetic uh, difference. Um, it's, it's the reality of the world. Um, but as a coach, a trainer, we have to to recognize these limitations that are out there within people um, and and the way in which their current position is and find options, find ways, find these paths or solutions to help them get it back on track. Um, and one of the most important things that we have to do is we have to allow these these or encourage these individuals to go out there and take risk without any any fallback or perception, whether it's, you know, from, you know, the co-workers, uh, their superiors or families or friends. It has to be safe. And, you know, that was something that that, you know, I learned early on. You know, I didn't lose fitness. I didn't when I was young. I didn't have any fitness. And if it wasn't for my father, um, with his encouragement, uh, you know, it's an interesting story on how that happened, but I would never be where I am today. Well, I'd love to hear it. What, what was the, uh, the kind of pivotal moment? 
So for me, I mean, just the same thing. It's interesting as, as adults, we lose our fitness and we, we lose our way uh, because of, of life's distractions. Um, as kids, you know, we develop, you know, at various rates. And I was very late in developing and I had never done anything athletic. My, my brother uh, and I have two sisters were, boy, they were athletic ever since I could remember. Um, and I just wasn't that way. I was a very skinny teenager. Um, and I remember uh, watching the Iron Man on television. And um, if you've ever watched the Hawaiian Iron Man, the one in Kona on TV, um, it's very inspiring. It's, it's um, empowering. And I remember sitting there with my dad watching it. And I had this feeling of like, wow, if I did that, if I did this one event, then and I finished that no one could ever take it away from me. And I will have forever have done something athletic on a significant scale. And uh, you, you have to recognize that my dad wasn't the easiest of people. And all of a sudden, though, I, I for some reason, I blurred out, you know, and I point to the television, I'd like to do that. And my dad, like I said, is well, he wasn't the easiest. Um, and I never have done anything athletic, super skinny, 17 year old kid. But imagine the power that my dad had in that moment. If he was at the slightest amount negative, if he was condescending, if he was um, sarcastic, I would have just cowered and, and, you know, said, oh, no, 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 I was just kidding. And, you know, what's funny is my dad didn't, you know, right away say anything, but then, but he did confirm he's all just so we're watching the same thing because, you know, being a flighty 17 year old, he says, that's a 2.4 mile ocean swim. It's a 112 mile bike ride. And then your run, if you are relatively fast, it's going to start in the heat of the day across the lava fields of Hawaii, and you're going to run 26.2 miles before you get to finish. And I just said, yeah, that, yes, that's <laughs> what I would like to do. And he wasn't sarcastic. He turned and he looked at me and he said, you know what? Let's make that happen. And it allowed the, the, the empowerment that that gave me that I am going to go and take this huge risk, but this risk, but he's got me. And that's what you want. You want someone that isn't going to be sarcastic and ridicule you. It needs to be safe because what you're trying to do is something that's, that's difficult. And you need someone that allows you to go out on the edge um, and go for it. And that methodology, that, that, that feeling is what I do with every single athlete that I coach. I, anybody could write workouts that smash people, but can you write a workout that's empowering, that motivates them to want to come back tomorrow? That's the most important thing, in my opinion, that if you can write something where they don't look over the shoulder for some, you know, glittering and, you know, glowing object, what they want is they want to be present and because you've provided something that inspires them, that builds their confidence, that builds their knowledge, they want to come back and see you. And if I can get them to come back, that's where I can create the greatness. It's about retention. Yeah, and that, that's such a 
such a true parallel with with our profession, not even just with the the actual fitness strength and conditioning side, but just in the draw ground as well. And I think that there's, there is a fear and you'd think that, you know, first responders would be fearless, but that ego is a very strange thing. And when they get further into their career, that self-doubt comes in and, and that draw ground that should have been a challenging yet safe environment. And when I mean safe, you're there to make mistakes and then we'll rectify the mistakes and we'll fix them. Um, yep. becomes the opposite. They become fearful of it. I don't want to look silly in front of my peers. It's like, well, obviously, when you take a step back, the reality is, A, you're not going to be silly, but B, if you don't rectify any issues on the drill ground or in the gym, when you're out in the streets, lives are at stake. You know, the price is way higher than looking silly in a, in a, in a plywood search prop, for example. Yeah, but the problem with that is, is that, and I agree with you, the problem out there is that fixing things are in the now it's in the present the call to go you know fight a fire is in the future and so what there's a tendency is is like oh i'll start tomorrow i'll work on it later and they just keep pushing it out and they push it out for a long amount of time um i think that the 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 issue is 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 this delicate balance of, of perception that that people have um, and this, this risk that they want to take. What's interesting about people is that that is a universal. You know, I've coached a lot of world champions and they're probably the most fragile population of people of them all. They're probably one step away from tears um, because they're just on that edge. And everybody has that same feeling. The problem is, is people that have lost their fitness think that they're isolated when in fact that is not true. It is something that is universal across the entire population of people. And that's where, as a coach, I have to be incredibly sensitive uh, to world champions because if I break them, uh, then that's where the trigger starts and the downturn begins. And, you know, that's how delicate it is, is that they're up on the peak. And any slight change in that is just downward direction. The opposite holds true for someone who's lost their fitness. It's easy once they start because everything is upside. Yeah, absolutely. Now, now you just reminded me of a story I heard you tell uh, one of the other podcasts. It's kind of parallels as we have a lot of people listening that, that um, are lifeguards too, whether it's Ocean Rescue or somewhere else. I, must, I was actually a lifeguard for a few years before I became a firefighter as well. Um, but I think this is a very pertinent story for just just everyone to hear but you talked about in the i think it was a run swim run at one of the crossfit games matt mm -hmm. frazier's near drowning experience and i would love for you to tell that story because i think that's you know very pertinent especially in the ocean rescue arena so what i am is is really a, an expert in in movement and one of the things matt frazier he's you know the four times fittest on earth, the CrossFit Games. He's, he's one of the most talented athletes in the world today. But there was an event, and it was a 1.5-mile run into a 500-meter swim into a 1.5-mile run. And Matt and I have been working together for since uh, January of 2015. We know each other really well, and this was a good event for him. Um, Matt comes from a weightlifting background, but, um, through years of, of work on his part, 
he's capable of running a, a very low five minute mile uh, max effort for one mile for time. So the run for him was something where he should establish his dominance and, and get in the front. Interestingly enough, he finishes the, the run in front of the 40 other, 39 other athletes, male athletes in first place, hits the water. And what they had to do is swim around two buoys uh, in a triangular pattern uh, in a counterclockwise direction. So he jumps into the lake, he swims off to the first buoy, <clears throat> and he rounds the buoy in first place. And then the faster swimmer started catching him and passing him. And so what Matt knows is that when someone gets in front of you in the water, you need to start drafting off them. It's a 30% easier effort if you can tuck in right behind them. And so that's what he does. But because they're so fast, he has to accelerate his kick. Next thing he knows, Brent Fikowski, who's a very good swimmer, grabs him. And Matt was apparently bobbing in the water. Um, he's some he somehow blacked out in the water and that was alarming. Um, he limped in on the swim and, um, regrouped himself on the run and ended up finishing, I think fifth place in that event. So afterwards, this was something that was alarming and Matt and I, we, we talked a lot about it. And the first thing that Matt thought was, is that maybe he went too fast in the run. Um, but, the thing about it was, is that he rounded the first buoy, which was a good 150 meters into the swim, and he rounded it in first place, and he was swimming just fine. Didn't happen until halfway through the swim. And what I talked to him about was, is that your acceleration when people caught you, let's talk about that. And what he told me was, is that he had to accelerate his kick. And I believe what happened, which I told him, I said, I think what happened was, is that your legs are not aerobically fit. And what happened to you was, as you accelerate your kick, they consume all your available oxygen. It leaves your arms to go support the demand in the legs. And the next thing you do is that you go above your lactate threshold and you unfortunately put yourself into a position where because you were not slowing down, and because the swim finish was too far away, your body only had one other option, and that was to shut down muscle fibers to get you to recover. The unfortunate thing was is that, Matt, you are not on dry land. When we're on dry land and we get into trouble, we could just stop and put our hands on our knees and bend over and, and allow the muscles to recover to clear out that lactate you're not able to swim at a slow enough speed and to stay above the you know, water. And that's what I think happened. And so one of the things that we, we started addressing was is teaching him how to swim slower and to be able to recover. And that is a common problem for athletes. But the other thing that we needed to address was his weakness. And his weakness wasn't his upper body's fitness. It was his legs. And what we did is we had to start improving the aerobic capacity of his legs, the ability to work aerobically. And what I mean by that is the ability to move and utilize oxygen, as well as remove and clear lactic acid. And so we did a lot of kicking. Uh, we did uh, no fins. We did short little fins. We, we did long fins. 
And I would do a lot of the swim workouts with Matt. And um, we were early on in this process of building aerobic capacity in the kick. Um, and he told me, he says, are your hip flexors burning on fire? And I'm like, no, I'm good. And the thing is, is I come from a strong swimming background. You know, I ended up doing, you know, 10 Ironmans. And, you know, I was usually the top three out of the water in all 10. I'm a good swimmer. And he told me, he said, you know, my hip flexors, he says, I can't swim more than 25 meters at a time. I got to rest. Well, there we found out another valuable piece of information. His limiting factor in the kick, as far as the movement, the muscle groups, was the hip flexors. And so what we had to do is start working on building muscular stamina, muscular endurance in that particular muscle group, that his limiting factor that was preventing him from getting better at the kick was his hip flexors. And so we started doing dry land isolation work. And we started doing a variety of things to build up the muscular stamina and the, the ability to clear lactate in that particular movement pattern. Um, and that was the, the, the beauty. We attacked it on three approaches. One, to teach him how to swim slow and recover. Two, focus on the limiting factor that's preventing his swimming to get better. And then three, what muscle group was the weakness within the overall weakness of the, the, the movement of a kick while swimming? And that was his hip flexor. Right. Now, was and that... I'm sorry, was that a limiting factor because most of the movements that we do on land didn't mimic it? Because, I mean, I know he was a, a very, very strong lifter, so obviously he had strength in those legs. The thing was is that it was not his, his ability to generate power, his strength in the hip flexor. They're phenomenal. The problem was, is his muscular endurance within the hip flexor is that they just fatigued and would fail. And then when they would fail, how was he going to perform the kick? Well, unfortunately, he would resort to not kicking from the hip flexor and the high hamstring, but he would kick from the knee, the bending of the knee. And if you bend your knee when swimming, it breaks the plane of the torso and that forces you to slow down. And so what we had to do is we had to build up the muscular stamina, his ability to move in long amounts of time, that hip flexor. And that's the thing is that people, what, what we need to be teaching people is the importance of muscular stamina. You know, elite marathon runners, they run 150 miles in a week because they don't want the 26.2 miles to be a muscular stamina failure. And if your slow twitch fibers start failing in a movement, What's going to happen is, is that you're going to end up having to use your fast twitch fibers to pick up the slack. And when your fast twitch fibers start picking up the slack, now all of a sudden you're generating lactate. And that lactate's going to build up unless you're aerobically fit and have the ability for your slow twitch fibers to efficiently remove it as fast as it's coming in. And that's the problem with what people are doing is that most of the time, their limitation that's preventing them from doing more work is not their intensity. It's not their speed. It's not their strength, their power, their force. It's that they get tired. They get fatigued. It's their inability to recover. And that 
is what Matt's limitation was. It wasn't his ability to generate power. It was his lack of recovery that prevented him from getting better. And that became the focus, not building more volume in the movement of swimming, you know, not more time in the water, not more intensity, but we focused on the quality of recovery. Right. And that's, again, such a a great parallel to to firefighting because ironically, we have a thing called the combat challenge, which is supposed to be our firefighter um, sport event. And the problem is the times are, I believe, like a minute and a half is, you know, like a world record somewhere around that minute 50. Um, that doesn't replicate what we do at all. The reality is in firefighting, it's, it's, uh, there'll be periods of exertion. And then, you know, just like you're saying, there are periods where you're advancing a hose line, you're, you're doing a search, whatever, which is when you need yep. to, we need to be recovering and you need to get that intensity down. So God forbid you find a person or need to force a door. Now you have to ramp it back up again. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that if you look at the movements that that occur within firefighting, right? So, you know, you've obviously got stair climbs and and you've got packs that you're carrying. You've got the hose hoist. You've got walking with the hose, kneeling with the hose. You've got equipment lifts and carries. You've got ladder raises. I mean, you've got a variety of these movements, entries, victim drags, breaches, all of these movements. there are similar types of movements, dry land movements, that can replicate those, those, those movement patterns. And what needs to be addressed is, is the same thing that, that Matt Fraser went through, is, is identification of which movements are preventing you from performing your job in a much more efficient, effective, and safe way. And is it, is it your strength that's preventing you from being um, more successful at that movement, or is it that you get fatigued? And my approach is the the recovery is the limiting factor that that the the people that are in the firefighter space they 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 can generate sufficient power to perform the tasks. The problem is is that after they perform the task, are they able to recover and continuing to perform the primary mission of the job? It's about recovery. So I don't care, for example, on a firefighter, how fast they're climbing the flight of stairs. But when they get to the top, how fast are you able to recover to continue the task? It's about recovery. So in firefighting, for example, I, I, and I've spent a lot of time in, in researching and looking and talking uh, to firefighters. There's, a matter of fact, a lot of firefighters that are in the CrossFit space. And the thing about it is, is that capacity is limited by the bottle. When you take a bottle and fight a fire, how long is that bottle going to last? And are you able, after you come out, when that bottle is used, how long does it take for you to recover? And do you have the ability of going back in? And that, to me, is where the limitation is, is that if I'm a fire chief, my ability to fight a fire is based upon the team of people that I have available to me and their capacity in terms of bottles. If my team can only go in and use one bottle and they're not clear to go in to use another bottle, there's my capacity constraint. What if I can take that group and improve their ability to recover and they can now go in with the second bottle or perhaps a third bottle and be safe? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and what I've, I've found as a coach myself, and like I said, did CrossFit for a long time, have, have seen, you know, the highs and lows, if you like, of, of, uh, our interpretation of the philosophy, I guess is the best way of putting it. Um, but a big, big glaring thing for me, and this is not just my fellow firefighters, but just, just the athletes in general is, you know, there's, there's again, there's understanding of, of these barbell movements and the bar movements, some of those things. But then when you put these men and women in what you and I would, would consider a tactical functioning, a tactical function set of movements like sandbag carries, sled push, sled pull, um, you know, farmers carries, stair climbs, there is, you I mean, it's a glaring weakness then. So to, you know, to the people that are doing their bench press and, you know, maybe they're elite triathletes, you know, whatever it is, understanding that that specificity and that muscular endurance for the, the movements that we do, even if you have a great aerobic capacity for the, the sport that you love, if you're not training with these movements under load, movement over distance, moving, you know, vertically, um, that you can still have a huge chink in your armor. Absolutely. I mean, that's this theory of specificity. You really have to, to find applications that mimic what you're wanting to get good at. Um, and, and when I look at, the 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 job of of firefighting one of the things that every firefighter can quickly write down is here's what my job requires me to do this is what's involved in fighting a fire i think that that what firefighters need to be looking at and addressing in terms of their own health and well-being safety is looking at those movements and addressing those movements and asking them, just like anybody would train for anything. There are three primary qualities in, in everything that we do. There's three. It looks at the, I look at the volume, I look at the intensity, and I look at the recovery. Which of those three in those movements that you use on your job are preventing you from becoming safer, more successful, more efficient, more effective. It's one of those three. And that's the thing is that, you know, as a coach, our job is pretty straightforward. If an athlete wants to build more volume, they want to put more time in, you know, to be able to move, such as let's say you want to run a half marathon, then all I do is I add more running volume into your training program. And what's the body adapt to do? More volume. That's how we build strength as we move in the direction of strength. Or if I want to make you faster, all I do is I make you run slightly faster week after week after week. And what's the body adapt? It adapts to speed. But what we're not addressing, and this is the thing, is that I don't believe it's the volume. I don't believe it's the intensity on the firefighter side. I think the focus is the ability to recover to generate a tremendous amount of fatigue in a particular movement. And then the weakness, in my opinion, is the ability to recover. How fast can you recover after generating that amount of fatigue? And a simple, like, a simple comparison, take a running sprint. If you run fast for 15 seconds, the question is, is that I have you then go into a jog recovery. How fast can you jog and still be able to recover? That's the question. I don't care how fast you're running. My question is, is how fast can you move on the recovery side? 
And that's the thing is that what I am, am proposing and the way I coach is one of the major measures of aerobic fitness is how fast can you recover? And it's not intimidating. I am not going to focus on your intensity. I'm not going to make you pick up a barbell. I'm not going to make you pick up things that are incredibly heavy. You know, I'm not interested in that. All I care about is that you did a movement that mimics the movement that you do on your job at a high intensity. And then what we're going to do is we're going to focus on the jog recovery. We're going to focus on the clearance of that fatigue to teach your body how to recover at a faster rate. The focus in my programming is not on the intensity, it's on the recovery. And that's where it doesn't become intimidating. So then what what is that? I mean, obviously, you know, you're not going to be able to describe the entire programming, but with com- compared to what you would normally see programmed in, let's say, a regular CrossFit gym, you know, uh, the workout of the day, what would your program look like as far as, you know, sets and reps and, and the, the movements um, to, to, to encourage that recovery versus, for example, you know, explosive strength? I mean, let's just talk about a simple movement of push-up. For you... How many? I mean, how many push-ups can you do unbroken? Uh, Just ballpark. It's not a, a strong movement for me. About thirty, and I'm pretty much okay. I got long, skinny arms and no chest. So, <laughs> right. So, so, but okay. So thirty. Now the the thing is, is that you can do thirty push-ups unbroken without any rest. And the question would be, is that all right? We want to build your work capacity. We want to get you to be able to do more push-ups unbroken. We want to get you to 31, 32, up to forty. And the question is, is for you, let's say that you're the athlete and I'm the coach and your goal is, do you want to be able to do more? I have to find out what's preventing you from doing more. And it's either one of two things. It's either your, your speed, strength and power, your force, right? Or you get tired and you have to tell me which one of those is preventing you? Is it your fast twitch explosive anaerobic side or is it your slow twitch recovery side? What's preventing you from doing more? If I can get you to clear fatigue at a faster rate while doing the push-ups, could you do more? Or do you feel that you lack the strength? And so with you being able to do 30, it's not that your strength is preventing you because you could do 30 of them. In my opinion, if I was assessing you even without any input, you just get tired. Right. So you as an athlete tell me that you just get tired, meaning that it's your recovery that's preventing you from doing more. If I can improve your ability to recover in the movement of a push-up, then you should be able to do more. So what do I do? I focus on your recovery. So a good example would be is that I'm going to have you do – I'm going to have you do – 10 seconds of, I'll have you do 12 seconds of of push-ups, as many as you possibly can. Um, And what I want you to do is just do them as fast as you can. And as soon as you're done with the 12 seconds, I want you to flip over on your back. And I want you to do a floor press with the PVC pipe. But the floor press with the PVC pipe, which I want you to do in the same movement pattern that you just did in the 12 seconds, movement pattern of a push-up, but I want you to do it nice and slow. Same movement pattern. The only rule is no stopping. And I want you to finish out the remainder of that minute moving nice and slow. 
So essentially what we've done is 12 seconds of creating fatigue. Don't count your reps because that's not the purpose. It's about creation of fatigue. High intensity, fast twitch, anaerobic movement. I want to maximize the amount of lactate in the movement of the push-up. And then what I want you to do is flip over on your back and do what we would call your jog recovery. I want you to do an active recovery in the movement of push-up with the PVC pipe. Now, I know the PVC pipe is not going to sound like a whole lot, and, you, and I'm telling you to move slow, but I want you to do five rounds of this. So it's a total of five minutes. Now, the thing is, is that most people think that it's not going to be that difficult. The problem is, is that most people have never done five minutes of unbroken push-ups, which they're about to do. And so what we're teaching people is, and it's a trick, we're getting people to move, but we've for a longer amount of time, five minutes in this case, where they've never been able to do it because I disguise a portion of this five minutes as active recovery. It's the same thing we do in the running world. I'm going to have you run 100 meters, and then what I want you to do is finish up the remainder of that lap, 300 meters, and a jog recovery. And most people, what we do is we focus on intensity and distance. They just run 100 meters, and then they sit around to do nothing for three minutes. And the problem with always sitting around in your recovery and doing nothing is if you put the stimulus of sitting around and doing nothing, even with good nutrition and good recovery, your adaptation is you get good at sitting around and doing nothing. And what we want to do is we want to teach people to focus on the act of recovery. So for you, that would be week one. Next week, what we're going to do is we want to drive in the, the improvement in the direction of the adaptation that will benefit you, which is your recovery. I want to teach you, your muscles, in the movement of a push-up, how to recover at a higher intensity. So instead of next week you getting a PVC pipe, I'm going to make you do your slow 48 seconds of floor presses with a five-pound plate, nice and slow, just like you did the week prior with the PVC pipe. But I have made the recovery side of the equation more difficult. This is the direction of adaptation I want to go. The next week, I'm going to give you two five-pound dumbbells. The week after that, I can give you a 10-pound plate. What I'm going to do is I'm going to gradually, week after week, push you in the direction of the adaptation which we're targeting, which is your recovery side of the equation and making it more and more difficult. So in the analogy of running, we're not going to focus on your running sprint. What we're going to do is we're going to focus on your jog recovery. Week after week, I want to have that 300-meter jog at a slightly faster finishing time. And what would the body adapt to do? It's going to adapt to being able to jog at a higher level of intensity, but you'll recover at the same rate. Essentially, I'm going to make you jog faster and faster, but the level of fatigue will be the same. Yeah, and again, such a, a parallel that we had that awful Jersey shooting, uh, excuse me, Jersey City shooting yesterday. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, you know, the officers that were on scene there, I'm sure had moments of high intensity and then moments where they needed to recover, but they certainly weren't sitting around. Someone was shooting at them. So, I mean, the, again, the parallel 
is is striking and and I'd never thought of my lack of push-ups to be an endurance issue so much or a lack of recovery issue as strength you know and I've always talked about the biomechanics side and of course you know there there is an element of that but you know when you think I am quote unquote fit then you think of that globally but now as with Matt's uh, example in the water I can see how yeah that's probably well not probably yeah you're telling me it it, it definitely is uh, an area where I'm weak. So I'm going to specifically do that with the push-ups um, and, you know, do it for myself. Yeah. So for Matt, the first workout that he did for his hip flexors was he did a Russian twist uh, with his feet off the ground. Um, and he did it with a 25 pound plate. Um, and he moved from right side to left side with the 25 pound plate doing the Russian twist as fast as he could, bouncing the plate off of the ground. Uh, for 12 seconds. And then what he did is he dropped the plate. Uh, and then he just moved his hands, put all finger, 10 fingers, touched the right side and did a Russian twist touching the left side at a very slow active recovery pace. So he did 12 seconds of Russian twists as fast as he could with a 25 pound plate, feet off the ground. And then he did 48 seconds feet on the ground with just his hands, nice and slow, fingertips touch the ground each time, five rounds, no rest in between each of the sets. And the thing was, is that one, we want to have that rotational movement because we rotate in the movement of swimming. But that that sounds like an ab or core workout. But in reality, it's nothing but hip flexor. And so what we did is we focused on his hip flexor and building muscular stamina. Now, after we built up his muscular stamina to be able to move for five minutes, we started adding on more intensity, but not on the intensity side of the equation, meaning I didn't want him to, to, to create more fatigue. What I wanted to do is I wanted to add more intensity on the recovery side of the equation. So instead of him moving his hands from side to side, I want him to do something that had a load associated with it. So he moved a two and a half pound plate, nice and slow. That workout is significantly more difficult than the one he did originally. And we continued in driving in the direction of the targeted adaptation, which was recovery. I want to be able to get you to recover, but I want to do it at a much higher level of an intensity. And that's the direction of adaptation we would take. Yeah. And, and again, I, I totally see adding the load that, you know, first week you are, you know, I mean, it's not going to be a hundred percent, but let's say your intensity is 90% in, in reality. And then you're dropping down at 10% with that PVC pipe and recovering. And then, and, and then that, that gap is, is getting more and more narrow to the point where you can just drop down intensity ultimately, maybe only 20%. And recover, even though you're putting in that amount of work on the fire ground or or on the battlefield. Right. I mean, a lot of people always ask me. There's like, so is, does running ever get easier? No, it doesn't. It never gets easier. You just get faster. So when you do a mile for time and it takes you 15 minutes, it hurts real bad. Got it. And then if you continue and improving, and let's say you get down to 10 minutes it's still going to hurt the same. It's just that you're moving faster. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to get people to recognize that recovery is the exact same thing. 
I'm trying to get you to recover at a higher level of intensity. And if I had you do a 100-meter sprint, are you able to jog? No, you're not? Okay. Are you able to walk? No? Okay. Then your only ability is then that you have to sit around and do nothing. What I want to get you to do is not sit around and do nothing. I, I want to get you to walk. And then I want to get you to jog. And then I want to get you to be able to run. And that's what we're trying to do. Because if I can get you to run in your jog recovery, instead of just doing a 500-meter sprint, I'm now getting you to move 400 meters. And that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to build capacity, but not on the intensity side, on the recovery side. Yeah, and that makes so much sense. And we, we discussed, uh, you know, when we first spoke to each other about what a great uh, tool this is for the deconditioned athlete as well. How, yeah. because you're starting with that low intensity, how the, the buy-in is going to be a lot better because it's not <laughs> five minutes of, you know, non-stop push-ups. You know, you've got this thing where 12 seconds on paper doesn't seem like a lot. Obviously, cumulatively, it's going to increase intensity, but those... You, you know, you can make that entry level very, very low to get people to not be afraid of what they're trying to do. Absolutely right. I mean, that's the thing is like, it, it, remember the story I said about getting into the sport of triathlon and the Ironman in Hawaii. I, I, I am not into, pro, I mean, obviously I coach a lot of world champions, but I am not into programming and featuring the biggest and the baddest and the strongest. I, I That to me is not appealing to me. I, I, if we are always doing that as coaches, imagine the recreational athlete that walks in the door and they're always finishing last. Are they going to want to come back? And so that's where these workouts have value in the sense that I don't care how many repetitions you do. All I want you to do is create fatigue. And so if you have to do a knee push-up so long as your muscle groups are creating the fatigue, look, in that workout, I go to my knees on the third round. I do. If I am creating fatigue, that's the purpose of the workout. Do not count your reps. And so if you do it in a group environment, the only job during that 12 seconds of push-ups, whether it's from your knees or not, is to maximize the amount of fatigue being built up in the muscles that are moving. Don't count because it doesn't matter. And then flip over on your back and move the PVC pipe. That's where there is a, a sense of equality across the board, is that we all will feel the same because you know what? We're all tired in that 12 seconds. And you know what? Everybody will complain the same. And so if we're doing these types of workouts, especially in a firehouse, it creates unity because we all feel good about it. So imagine, <clears throat> imagine... What we did was we did a, a workout that was, instead of doing push-ups, you did a floor press with a plate. Go grab your plate, and what we're going to do is we're going to do 20 seconds of floor presses, maximizing fatigue. And then what I want you to do is I want you to put that plate on your chest, and you're just going to move nothing but air for the remainder of the minute. Go grab whatever plate you want, because we're doing five rounds, 20 seconds of high-intensity floor press with a plate, then 40 seconds with no plate, plate rest on your chest, and you're going to go 40 seconds of active recovery with just your hands, five rounds, no rest. Go grab whatever plate you want. And the people that grab a white lightweight plate, you know what they're going to do? They'll do more repetitions. The heavy plate, they're going to do less repetitions. 
But all, everybody in the entire firehouse doing that workout is going to be fatigued in that 20 seconds, which is what we want. They will all complain the same and no one's counting. There's no numbers. What we're doing is we're targeting a specific stimulus so that we can focus on the recovery. Now, this, this is a five-minute workout that we've been talking about. Obviously, that in itself is going to be, you know, a great tool for people. Is this something where you'll add a series of these and different body movements in, in the same day? Or, you know, how, how do you um, – is it always just, just one movement per day? Or is there ability to, to do more if there's other, other uh, movements that you want to do in that same day? So, yeah, you can definitely do um, multiple movements. Um, and that's the thing is that you identify – so what I've done is I've identified all the movements that, that are used in firefighting. And then what you do is you create dry land movements that, that mimic that movement pattern, muscle groups. Um, and you can do upper body into a lower body. You could do that push-up workout into a grip workout. So say, for example, you're doing something that requires grip. Um, such as a farmer's carry. I mean, there's a lot of grip requirements in fighting fire. And so we can do a, um, a, a heavy uh, hold into a lightweight uh, farmer's carry with a walk. Um, the hold's going to create tremendous fatigue, and then the lightweight walk will allow us to clear the fatigue uh, because it's at a much lighter weight. Maybe some people, because their grip isn't there, they'll um, – They'll start with, you know, a PVC, and that's what they're doing with their farmer's carry. Um, we could also do something similar where we hang from a, a pull-up bar, um, and then we can go into some type of uh, uh, recovery such as a, a hold or even a movement where you're on an assault bike and just doing the pull only or a rower where you're focusing on grip and the pull only. So you can mix up these movement patterns. Um, and that's what I would recommend. I would recommend doing um, a warm-up and then do two five-minute workouts with roughly a three- to four-minute break in between and then a cool-down. We're talking 30 minutes of work, but it's specific to the job, meaning your adaptation in these workouts will be much higher than any other workout that you would do because it directly correlates to what you do in, 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 in the job. Absolutely. And it's, it's a very short amount of time needed. So for most of us in the firehouse, you know, we don't have hours to, to spend in the gym anyway. So it's a very efficient, you know, way of, of conditioning your body. Yeah. And you could do it in, in groups too. So I know that firehouses, they, they like to train at the same time and train together. So you could set up stations where, you know, some people are going to work on, um, let's say there's their stair climbing ability, you know, climbing the stairs. So what I want you to do is I want you to do a, a weighted box step up and then an unweighted box step up. Um, we can then have another station that works on grip. We could have another station that works on sled drags from a kneeling position uh, into a recovery, um, like a row or an assault bike, just pull only. Um, there's so many different types of stations that we can set up and then rotate through in a cycle or, or a format where everybody in the firehouse can be doing the same workout together because it would have the same time domain, meaning 
maybe it's 15, we're, guys, we're going to go 15 seconds on today, 45 seconds of active recovery. Here's the three movements that we're going to be doing. You pick your weight and you pick your active recovery. If you did this workout last week, then what I want you to do is focus on either adding more intensity or on the intensity side or more intensity on the recovery side. And you give the athlete the ownership of that selection. That's where the athlete would come in. And so every 15 seconds, you, you would change. 45, change. And then what you would do is get three to five minutes of recovery and rotate and pick a different muscle, a different movement pattern. And that's where it creates some unity is that there's no judgment anymore on, on what volume people are doing. Um, it's about a stimulus. And the focus is not on the intensity in firefighting. It's on the recovery. And what we're trying to do is get you to recover at a higher level of intensity. And you're empowering the athlete to make those decisions as they progress and improve their fitness. Absolutely. Now, on the other side of the spectrum, someone like me who um, I really enjoy you know, where I train. It's part of my routine now. Say you're already doing four or five wads a, a week where would you then uh, enter the capacity ward in in that kind of uh, training routine i would do them at the end of my workout um and i would put them in there i i like finishing up workouts in that way um it is it is a mental challenge you know people always ask like why do you do five rounds five minutes it's because six is too many and four is not enough <laughs> you know the the hardest round every workout has a sticking point Every single one does, you know, like if I asked you, for example, if I had you run a lap around the track as fast as you possibly can, where would it become the point where it's like, man, this thing just got real. Maybe it's a negative thought. Maybe doubt creeps in. Maybe it's like, man, I just hate running. Where would that occur for you? For me, I hit that point at around 240 meters. And, and the, the thing is, is that when I hit 240 meters, I am not having a good time. I say to myself, man, this is not fun. But the thing is, is I'm close enough to the finish line that I could bring it home. And everybody in every single thing that we do, there is a, a psychological energy system standpoint um, where we, we have this sticking point. And we have to recognize where those are in advance. In a five-round workout, five minutes, it's always going to be round four. But if I can get through round four as hard as it is, I know I can do that final round. It's kind of like doing a mile for time. <clears throat> when you finish that third lap, you're going to be hurting. But you know you can get one more lap done. You've only got and one you can left. bring it home. Yeah. Right. And so that's the thing is that the five minutes is important. Um, because the people that are really struggling, they know that if they get through four, they can finish the fifth. And the, what we're trying to do ultimately is build confidence in people. That's the number one. And you want people to feel that success, but also to battle the demons that are inside their head. Man, I want to quit. But they know that round four, if I can get through it, I can bring it home. And that's part of it is that we're trying to build confidence in these individuals so that the next time they do it, they want to challenge themselves either with more intensity on the intensity side or more intensity on the recovery side. 
Brilliant. Now, well, speaking of that, so that's a five-minute workout. You know, as we kind of skipped over your incredible accomplishments as a triathlete, um, the Ironman ultimately doing, you know, the one, the Kona. Um, what was it in you? What was that self-talk that allowed you to to perform at such a high level over um, hours and hours and hours of that intensity? So that's the that's with training so that the beauty of of you know i look back on those days and i i can't even wrap my head around it you know one of the times that i finished ironman and i said to myself in in hawaii the next day i said to myself with all seriousness and not but and it was just self-talk man i could do this seven days in a row imagine the brain damage that i must have had back then (laughs) to just think that that's a normal thought and that's the beauty of adaptation is that something that is impossible with gradual exposure day after day, your body becomes accustomed to the seemingly impossible. And so that's where when you step out of a sport like I did in the sport of triathlons and you remove yourself and you look back and you're like, wow, how did that happen? But that's the beauty of the body is it adapts to the stimuluses that you give it. And it's a gradual adaptation. And before you know it, that impossible becomes simple. And so part is, is that, you know, I, I, I take that methodology and, and, and I recognize, I mean, most of the people that I coach, most have lost their fitness. Most. You know, the people that I coach, like in online programming that I do, they're, they're slower than, than a 10-minute mile, the vast majority. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get retention. If I can keep them, then what I'm going to do is that seemingly impossible will become impossible. I mean, will become possible. And that's the key is, is that I can't have it be intimidating. If it's intimidating, they're not going to want to show up. And that's where I think a lot of the programming is making mistakes. I mean, could you imagine if you come to me and you're like, hey, Chris, I want to improve my running. And and I'm like, great. So today we're going to do 1.5 miles for time. And then on Friday, what we're going to do is we're going to do a 5K for time. And then I'm I'm going to give you two days of rest. And we're going to come back on Monday. And I'm going to have you do a mile for time. And then on Wednesday, it's an 800 for time. You're not going to want to come for very long. It's a lot of running. (laughs) Well, it's a lot of high intensity too. Mm -hmm. And so what we want to do is we want to focus on what is preventing the, the limitation. What's the weakness? And for most people, their weakness is not their intensity. For most people, their weakness is, I just get tired. Yeah, and it's interesting because I used to think I was a bad runner and I realized I was running too fast. Which sounds you know, counterintuitive, but it was. I was basically g- gassing out, and when I dropped the intensity down, I finally kind of realized that I was you know, kind of taught myself to go more towards the pose running type yep. of uh, step. Then I was amazed. I mean, I'm I'm not like an elite runner, but people say, "Oh, it's so easy for you. You're a runner." I'm, like, I'm not a runner. I'm I'm not a runner. I do not run very much. But again, it was it was that. Um, understanding where I was doing too much intensity versus pacing, which obviously I want to get to in a minute as well. Well, I mean, that's the thing is that pacing is, is 
what we're really saying when you say, hear this word pacing is, is we're, we're performing the task at our maximum sustainable intensity, at our lactate threshold. And I, I teach a lot in my seminars the importance of pacing. And one of the things that, that I didn't recognize that that was important, that people weren't aware was, how do you find that maximum sustainable intensity in a workout? If you've never seen that workout before, if you've never done that task before, how do you know how to find it? Um, and this concept of pacing, although it's a massive buzzword today, people don't understand when they should pace and when they shouldn't pace. And when they should pace, how do you find it? And then what's the physiological adaptation? You know, in my opinion, pacing-based workouts are the most important workout that any athlete should be doing. And the thing is, is that it has the best value for people's time. But what's happening is, is that they're not doing it correctly. They're taking it out fast. And then what they're doing is, is that they're, they're putting their hands on their knees and, and being forced to recover because they, they unfortunately inefficiently used their available energy to, to start that particular task. Yeah, and it's something that I've witnessed as a coach as well is there's kind of two two sides to the the extremes. You've got the overpacer who who pace well, I guess pacing is the wrong word. The 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 underachiever thinking they're pacing who basically barely even breaks a sweat doing it. And then, you know, as you're saying, which is definitely something that I make, and it's hard because you might be I'm I'm great, for example, on double unders. Just for some reason, I think it's from loving Bruce Lee years ago and teaching myself to jump rope. That's great, but then I'm not strong on some of the barbell movements. So then it's kind of like, you know, this movement I can accelerate. This movement I need to take a little bit more time. And, and it is, you know, it's, it's a learning experience for the athlete. And I think a lot of people then go too intense and then their form goes to shit, you know, and so then they think they're still moving, but they're not. Their, their movements are horrible now, but they're more concerned about the clock than they are the quality of their movement. Yep. Totally agree. I think that, um, yeah, I completely agree with you. I think that the, the, the key is, is people need to understand, you know, it's interesting, you know, I, 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 I for me, I would, I would love to run the 5k in the Olympics. I, I think that, that to do 5,000 meters on the track would be amazing. And can you imagine that at the start of my Olympic debut that I take off when the gun goes off and, and, you know, I build up a, a, a lead and I'm eight laps into a 12 and a half lap event around the track. And I've got a hundred meter lead and all of a sudden in lane one, I stop and I lean over and put my hands on my knees. <laughs> that, that would be incredible. Like, but in CrossFit, that's something that, that is often applauded, that, that it's a sign that you work really, really hard. The thing is, is that we want to recognize the value of, of adaptation and that is not creating or maximizing your potential adaptation in a, in a pacing-based workout. What we want to do is we want to get to the targeted, targeted stimulus, which is what we call lactate threshold or your maximum sustainable intensity, and stay there as long as you possibly can. That's what made the Ironman so easy. You stay at your maximum sustainable pace until you get to where 
you want to make your move to the finish line and you bring it home. It's easy. It's just a long grind. The key is, is that you need to find where that maximum sustainable intensity is. And what makes it tough is in the sport of CrossFit, every movement you do has a different maximum sustainable intensity. You have to learn how to feel that. Yeah. And that's the same with, with what we do. I mean, I think that's that the, the pacing is exactly what we need to understand on the fire ground or, you know, other tactical arenas. But I have seen, I have literally walked into a structure fire and this isn't supposed to be like some narcissistic claim I'm making now, but I've had fellow firefighters that have, that have hit that wall. And, yeah. you know, I've gone in and luckily I've been at a different level in a different fitness level and, and intensity that I've been working at and was able to finish the task. But you know, in the middle of a gunfight, in the middle of a structure fire, if we hit that wall and we get to that, you know, hands-on knees position, that can be extremely dangerous. So this is this is an area for us and the intensity changes with, with us, you know, forcing a door, climbing stairs, dragging, dragging a person. These are all very, very different physiological challenges that we have to understand the kind of, you know, ebbs and flows of the energy demands. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing is that nobody, nobody would ever start a task and, and have in their game plan that I'm going to have to put my hands on my knees. And so when that occurs, the system has completely unraveled. And what we have to do is we have to prevent that from happening. There has to be this higher level of awareness. I mean, one of the things that I teach people is, is that how do you know whether or not you're actually in a non-sustainable pace? that you've gone too fast. Like, how do you know? Like me as a coach. And the way I do it is based upon the breath. Remember, the breath is the oxygen. And so if we, our demand for oxygen is exceeding what we can supply, meaning to breathe in and to process into our muscles that are moving, then we hyperventilate. And the question is, is that when are you in control of your breath and when are you out of control of your breath? That is the tell. And so if I'm in combat, if I'm fighting a fire, if I'm in the middle of a workout, then I need to know when am I in trouble above my maximum sustainable pace and when am I at my controlled sustainable intensity. The thing about it is, is that why I say Ironman is, is not that difficult is because you just sit at your maximum sustainable pace. And that's all you can do. You can't do any more than that. The mistake people make is they believe in these moments of, 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 of weakness of, uh, that, oh, I'm just going to step it up a little bit. But now you're in a death zone, non-sustainable pace, and you will die. You will begin hyperventilating. And then what's going to happen is if you don't slow down, you're going to end up Muscles will shut off and your hands will be on your knees. And now, now you're in the worst possible position. So it's about the breath. The breath is the tell. And what people need to be aware of is, are you in control or out of control of your breathing pattern? It's the rhythm of the breath and the frequency of the breath. That's the tell. Yeah. Now, something I've come across recently, um, interviewing uh, Brian McKenzie and, and, um, some other people on the show is 
the the nose breathing element and again i'm not running around with duct tape over my face but just trying to to use that and and it almost seemed like that was a a great way of self-regulating as well because it's it appears like it kind of is a, a damper on on the intensity and it keeps you at that sustainable rate um i mean higher intensities you know i, I have to open my mouth but especially on the the runs the rows something's a little bit more uh, consistent and longer, I've seemed to have had really good results with my performance by doing that and then understanding the mouth breathing kind of fight or flight stimulus versus the nose breathing parasympathetic. It seems to make a lot of sense to me physiologically as well. What, what's the, the actual breathing techniques that you, you, you hold as your philosophy? So I do like the concept of nasal breathing um like you had just mentioned though that when the intensity gets high you have to breathe through your mouth and so um and then also there's a lot of people that don't have the capacity um through their nose for whatever reason right broken nose deviated septum they just don't have it and so there's a lot of confusion in that that area um everything from about 60% higher on your VO2, you're going to need to breathe through your mouth that you get an insufficient amount of oxygen through your nose, which is part of what nasal breathing is about, right? To force your body uh, with insufficient oxygen to perform. But again, what it depends on is the targeted adaptation. What are we really trying to target? Because if I made you breathe through a straw and run as fast as you can, you know, for a hundred meters and then do a hundred meter jog and repeat that 10 times, your speed is going to dramatically slow because you're not getting enough oxygen to support the demand that your muscles have for that, that energy. Well, why would you train your muscles to hurt real bad and run slow when you're targeting intensity, when you want to create speed? You've lost the stimulus that I'm trying to achieve. And so that's the thing is that as, as coaches and as athletes, we need to understand what the targeted adaptation is. Do I want to make you hurt real bad and to run slower and slower and slower? If, if that's the case, then I'm all for breathing through your nose in these high-intensity workouts. But if we're trying to build speed, then we need that oxygen. If we want to build our bodies, um, our muscles capacity to consume and utilize more oxygen, then we've got to fuel the system with that energy. And so that's where I, I, I don't want to say I'm, I, I, I divert away from where they're saying, because it's not that they're, they're not saying it. It just depends on what the targeted, um, adaptation we're achieving. And that's the thing about breathing and everything is that things get complicated. We need to get back down to the basics so that the recreational athlete understands breathing and what's the most important thing. And it's two things. The brain needs to know when the next dose of energy is coming. It needs to be consistent. And so if your breathing pattern is random, how does the brain know when the next dose of energy is coming? And if it doesn't, the brain will never relax the muscles as much as it normally would because maybe 
that's the last dose of oxygen that it's going to be getting. And so it's going to restrict your performance. But if you establish, for example, a swimmer, they have the best breathing rhythm of any athlete because it's on a reliable and predictable basis. The brain knows when the next dose is coming. The worst, weightlifters and gymnasts. Because on dry land, they could breathe whenever they want, and it could be random. The problem with that is, is that the brain will never relax and free up the muscles to perform the task if it's random. So it has to be consistent. It must be. In running, we take breaths based upon the number of footsteps you take. How many footsteps do you take per cycle of breath? That's the most important thing. And so for me, when I am at my threshold intensity, I'm taking four steps for every one cycle of breath. If I drop down to a three count, meaning three steps per cycle of breath, I am now in an intensity that's not sustainable. My option is, is I have to slow back down and get back in control of my breath, which would be a four. Or drop down to a two and then finish. And so what athletes and anybody needs to understand is the basics, not how many steps are you exhaling out, how many steps are you inhaling in, is it out through the nose and in through the mouth or vice versa. It's about the two basic concepts that people must understand first. It's the foundational piece, and that is the rhythm of the breath is critical. The brain needs to know when the next dose of energy is coming. And number two is, when are you in control and when are you out of control? And those two things are the keys. This is why I love doing this podcast. So many great perspectives on, on things. So thank you for that. Now, I heard you, speaking of breath holds, I heard you talking about a drill that you do in the pool um, to to do just that, to to create confidence in the body that another breath is coming to allow us to have more distance underwater, which I think, again, pertains to a lot of the, the careers that are listening to this. So would you mind elaborating on that? Yeah, absolutely. So for me, I could do a decent breath hold. Um, you know, my lungs are abnormally large. Um, and uh, I love taking athletes and, and um, going to the pool. And before we get in the water, I ask them, can you guys hold your breath for a minute? And all of them, you know, it's a waste of time, of course, you know, of course we can. So I sit them down and I put a watch, you know, stopwatch and I start it. We all hold our breath for a minute. And then what I do is I immediately take them to the edge of the pool and it's a 25 yard pool. And uh, they put their, they sit at the edge of the pool, um, looking down the length of it and they put their feet in the water and I tell them, okay, what I want you to do is I want you to slide at three, two, one, go slide into the pool down, you know, let's say it's six feet deep down to the bottom of the pool and then push off. And I want you to swim underwater the length of the pool. And I, and I don't want you um, to breathe the entire length. And what's interesting is if they've never done it before, they'll pop up in the middle of the pool and they've made it about eight seconds. And it's a very important learning lesson for people to recognize. And I always tell them, it's like, you know what? That was eight seconds. And why does that happen? And part of it is, is the adrenaline rush, this fear. The brain has no idea when the next dose of energy is coming. 
And so this adrenaline rush, which is the same thing that firefighters have with tactical fighters, with competitors that jump into uh, the CrossFit games and now all of a sudden there's, there's 20,000 people watching them. This fear, this adrenaline rush is real and it will consume all of that available energy and the same amount of fatigue they felt in holding their breath for one minute happened in eight seconds. And so what we teach them is the importance of controlling that fear to recognize and where this is going to exist. And, and meaning that when you are going that length of the pool the very first time, you were confident. It's going to take me at most 30 seconds and I just held my breath for 30 a minute. The problem is, is that that's not the way it's going to feel under the water because of the adrenaline rush. The thing is, is that you must, you must have a plan. If you even do one lap underwater and you think, oh, this is no problem, no problem, no problem. Well, you know what? In the middle of it, when you start feeling like, oh my gosh, there's a problem, there is a mismatch. Your perceived amount of pain right? Because you thought it was going to be nothing is not balancing or matching with your actual pain. This is called a hazard score. You must, you must be prepared because if you're surprised, you'll underperform and you'll pop up in the middle of the pool. You have to recognize in everything you do, where is that point going to be where you're like, uh-oh, this just got real. And now, you must also recognize how much pain am I going to be in when that occurs so that you're not surprised. So you got to have that plan in place. And the trick is, is that when I get these athletes to the pool, I've overbuilt their confidence. And it has the exact effect that we're looking for. And that is, you know what? You must in everything you do have a plan. You must. What am I going to do if this thing turns upside down, what's my plan? Because no one plans to have their hands on their knees. Nobody does. And what do you do when that happens? What's the plan? And you know what you see? You see people shaking their arms out, right? You see that all the time, shaking your arms out. What they're not recognizing is, is that you're breathing, you're hyperventilating, and your breathing is random. Your arms are starving because your muscles are filled with lactate. And unless you get more oxygen in there, you know what? All the shaking that you're going to be doing, you got to get it back in control of your breath. You got to get that rhythm back. And once you do, now you can start your recovery. Brilliant. I mean, again, I, lo I love that whole parallel with what we do and, and the uh, adrenaline side. You talk about a, a drill doing underwater laps with a recovery each side. What does that look like? Um, I'm not sure which one you're referring to, but I, I do a lot of no breathing type things a lot. You know, it's interesting that the swimming community has been doing hypoxic work for a long time with proven results. It's interesting that, um, that we don't apply that same hypoxic format in anything else that we do. Um, and so I incorporate that into sessions such as on the rower, on the assault bike, where we're doing breath holds uh, to accelerate the rate of fatigue. 
um, and then make the the act of recovery more dramatic. In the pool, what I end up doing is, is I'll have them swim underwater the length of the pool and then um, do a above-the-water swim in terms of active recovery. Same concept. I cremate, create a dramatic amount of fatigue um, with underwater, and then what we do is we do an active recovery. Most people, when they do an underwater swim, they sit on the edge of the pool deck and they wait. And that's something that um, drives an adaptation where your body's always going to want to sit. Remember, if you always sit around and do nothing in your recovery, that's what you get good at. Uh, the other thing that I love doing is I love to get people hypoxic before going in the water. So can you perf- and uh, I mean underwater the length of the you know the length of the pool? Can you control your breathing and your um, your adrenaline when you're hypoxic? Meaning if you did you know ten thrusters hard and then what you did is you dived in the pool and most people struggle with that they'll jump in and they'll they'll side stroke until they get in control of the breath and then they'll start swimming and i teach on a routine basis what i want to do is i want to heighten the level of fear uh, and adrenaline so that when you go in it has still the same effect that you did from the original time when i sat you on the pool deck and you slid down the bottom of six feet and went across the length. I want to create that. Because the thing is, is that, you know, with, with people that are in, in stressful jobs where, where there is these adrenaline rushes and athletes that take a stage, they feel that, that rush the exact same way. You have to build these protocols in to where they're confident. It's, it's, it's when they're not confident that adrenaline rush surges and they blow up, that's when they're surprised. Because in training, they never encountered that situation. And so what we want to do is we want them to control that anxiety based upon their training through repetition. There's no reason why I should have any adrenaline rush right now because I've done this a thousand times. And that's what you're talking about. You know, it's interesting when people talk about athletes and the competent ones, this mindset they developed that through repetition and they built that mindset efficiency through doing it over and over and over again. If you haven't done that task, what makes you think that you're not going to be afraid? Of course you're going to be afraid. That's why people pop up in the middle of the pool the first time that they've done it because of fear. But if we practice that fear is gone and instead of going into an event with an unknown, you go into it with confidence and that fear is eliminated. And that's why the great athletes are great is because they've been doing it for a long time. That fear is gone. Yeah. And again, it's so pertinent to what we do as well. And I think that's the the problem, you know, if there's a deviation from the fitness and the training after X amount of years in this profession is you find yourself in that pool and you haven't been in the pool for so many years, you are going to pop up, you know, halfway through, yep. but in, in, in a fire scene or, or a combat scene. Um, and yet, just like you've mentioned a couple of times this interview, if you just keep that routine and incrementally keep adding the stresses, whether it's physically or, you know, in, in a fear base as far as stress on the fire ground, 
you're you're going to be better and better and and your comfort zone is going to be huge compared to the person who has shied away from challenging themselves and now finds themselves in a very scary situation exactly and that's what specific training is though it's 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 specific and if it, it, you know the thing is is that you want to do things in your training so firefighters in the firehouse, that the, the, the movements that they're doing in their training should be things that they do on the job. They should be specific so that when you encounter the situation, you're on autopilot. Your body recognizes it. And if you don't, and it's, it's not familiar to you, that's when the fear and the panic will come in. And this is something that, that it, makes like in the CrossFit world, that that concept is very difficult because we don't know what the events are. And so how do you prepare an athlete for the unknown and unknowable? Well, we know there's going to be running. We just don't know how long you're going to have to run for. So we have to train the movement of running. But what we also must do is train everything from maximal sprint speed, 10 second maximal speed, all the way down to walking. We must develop every intensity within the muscle fiber spectrum because every single intensity within the movement of running is unique. It recruits a different set of muscle fibers. What makes what I'm talking about in the firehouse significantly easier is we know the tasks that people are performing. And we also know the ranges of intensities that they're doing them at. And what you can do is build protocols around that. And that's what makes it much, much, much easier. So that when you encounter the real life situation on the job, your muscles will recognize the movement patterns and you will feel much more at ease. A good example of that is, is, you know, that run, swim, run that you were talking about. That year, I had some coaches contact me and they said, oh, I'm going to have my athlete do that event four days before the games because it was announced five days before of what that event was going to be. And they told me that they were going to do a nice, easy 1.5 mile run, a fast 500 meter swim and a nice, easy 1.5 mile run. And I begged the coaches, I go, please don't have them do it. And you know, the ones that, that went ahead and did it, the athletes did, they significantly underperformed. And the reason why was because when they did that 1.5 mile run, it was easy. Imagine how their bodies felt, their muscles felt, their central nervous system, their brain, it felt in response to that stimulus. It was enjoyable. And yeah, they had a tough swim. But doing a 500 meter swim is, it's, it's, it's insignificant to them. And then the closing 1.5, another fun run. And then four days later, gun goes off. Do their muscles and their central nervous system have the same sensation? Absolutely not. Right. There was a mismatch. And how does the brain perceive that mismatch? It perceives it as something is wrong and it creates an artificial fatigue. It makes them tired because they put the wrong stimulus on their body. It's the same thing if you and I were at the top of a hill and we were going to gradually run down that hill. And let's say it's like a 5%, you know, decline down. And we, you know, we're running down that hill 
And it's just the start. We're fresh. And imagine what our stride length is doing. And imagine what our turnover, our stride frequency is doing. It's, you know, our, we're taking a lot of steps per minute and our stride's getting pretty long. We've got nice controlled breathing pattern. We get 500 meters in, we hit the bottom of the hill, and now it ramps up to a 15% grade. What's going to happen to our stride length and our stride turnover? It's going to get short and it's going to become greatly reduced. And how is your brain going to perceive those two changes? It's going to be jarring. Right. It's going to think something's wrong. We were, we were just doing the opposite. And what's going to happen is you're going to have this phantom fatigue. And so you have, we have to recognize that this exists. And in that movement, like, for example, if we did that run, all we would do is we would make a smoother transition at the bottom. And what we would do is we would maintain our stride turnover and gradually step into a slower turnover as we climbed up that 15% grade, meaning we would go from, let's say, 180 steps down gradually to 120 steps. And we would be able to do that because we would, we would allow the stride length to be dramatically changed. And that way, the brain is not perceiving us as being in trouble. Because just like I mentioned about our breathing earlier, if our breathing is random, the brain assumes we're in trouble. And it's going to protect us. If we do a nice, easy 1.5-mile run, and that's how we're trying to train our muscles for what's about to occur, there will be a mismatch. We must train specifically. If you know the movement pattern, then train the movement pattern. That's like you, you mentioned double unders. For you, you could jump on and off of a plate, but you would need, if you wanted to transfer into a double under, you would wanna look at what is my average double under height. And if you're going to want to to do some dry land training other than doing double unders that's specific to a double under, then I would recommend you jump on and off of a plate as fast as you possibly can, but it must be at the height that you would do double unders. Right. So if it's, if it's higher than I'm used to jumping, it's again, it's going to shock my body into a different uh, well, an alarm state because it's not the movement pattern that I'm used to. And you're training your muscles to do something that is not specific to what you want. And that's the key is that's where specific training comes in. Yeah, it's great that people go and do all of these things in the gym. And I'm happy that they're working out. But if you have a specific task that you're training for, then you must train for that specific task. Remember, if you put that stimulus on the body, you do create this, this, this adaptation. But remember, every movement's unique and every intensity within that movement's unique because the way the body recruits fibers, the way it sequences those fibers, and the way it fatigues those fibers is unique to the movement and that intensity. Brilliant. Well, I mean, again, another great perspective. Now, I want to go on one more area before we go to the wrap-up questions because uh, as, yeah. as, as a coach who's literally coached some of the greatest athletes on the planet, um, I'm interested in your perspective as well. We talked a lot about recovery as far as, you know, muscular fatigue um, and, you know, and cardiovascular fatigue, but an area that I know, yeah, it's not a hypothesis because I've had so many people on here that have 
are in the sleep medicine world that have kind of underlined this, but is the sleep deprivation, whether it's law enforcement, dispatch, you know, wherever. Yeah. These, these people that are working shifts. My community on average works 56-hour work weeks if they're even fully staffed and they'll get told to stay another shift. Um, so that's 24 hours pretty much awake in modern-day society and then a 48-hour period and they're back at it again. So every third day for their 10, 20, 30-year career, they're awake. What yeah. is the importance you put on sleep with your athletes? And, you know, in your perspective, what would be the the uh, effect of them not getting the sleep such as a, a tactical athlete? So that's where a tactical athlete, it's, it's an incredible hardship what is happening on their job. Um, the... It's important that people recognize that in order to create an ad adaptation, you have to put a stimulus on the body. The thing is, is that no matter what stimulus I provide, I could be the greatest coach in the world and be perfect in every single thing that I do. The problem is, is that without good nutrition and good recovery, there is no adaptation that the nutrition and the sleep will destroy the greatness that I am putting on the body. And so people need to understand that their number one and two things that they need to do is, is they need to be focusing on their nutrition and the quality of their sleep because it will destroy the targeted adaptation that you're working so hard to create. And that's what people need to really understand is that you can't just do one of them. It's a three-pronged approach. You know, it's interesting that everybody talks about, you know, when they, 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 they look at weight loss, you know, oh, it's a balance between, you know, your workout and your nutrition. But they're forgetting the importance of sleep. It's a three-pronged approach. You are not going to have that adaptation unless you improve your sleep. And I really stress that. I stress the importance of sleep and I get it. You know, for me, I travel a lot. And the mistake that, that when you travel and moving around in time zones and you come back is that you end up not being able to sleep eight hours. You end up napping. And you see that all the time in the firefighter side is that when they get time off, they're still not just all of a sudden going back to eight hours. They're not conditioned that way. They'll sleep three hours and then they'll be up and then they'll sleep three hours. They end up napping. And what we need to do is we need to get them to focus and, and really develop skill sets and protocols so that when they do get back on their own clock, that they can get that, that seven to eight hours of time. And it's not a badge of courage when you sit there and say, oh, you know, I can get by on five hours like you've said on your podcast, and I've done extensive reading on it too, you've got to get this, this time in. You've got to get the time in. That is one of the most important things that you're doing for yourself along with your nutrition. Yeah. And, and what we see, there's many areas. There's you know obviously the weight gain, the hormonal imbalance, uh, the mental health issues, cardiovascular, all those. So, yeah. so one of the areas that I want to try and bring awareness to my profession and this obviously affects everyone else who's on a shift especially if it's you know a high hour so of you know student doctors is another area that's insane 
is to get these employers, these organizations, these groups of men and women to understand that you you have the athletes that you adore in your football, basketball, baseball, CrossFit arena that are getting this time for rest and recovery. And yet the men and women that were asking to run into a burning building, go into a school, rescue your child, you're asking them to work on you know, 56 hour work weeks, not sleeping every third day. Just understanding that if we change the work week, the Northeast of America does a 42 hour work week. So that's an extra night of recovery between the shifts. How much short term those tactical athletes are going to be able to thrive? How, how fewer injuries because they are going to actually be able to, you know, have, have an adaptation and recover. Um, and then, you know, long term, we're going to reduce the, the the health effects that we're seeing through this lack of sleep. Yeah, I completely agree. I, you know, what's interesting is that, um, you know, if we look at it from a training protocol standpoint, you know, I had a I had a, a coach back in my day, and we we always talked about mental fatigue, and what he would drive home is this concept because I was in college, the importance of sleep. And, you know, thinking tactically, um, you know, one of the things that, that separates a recreational athlete from a competitive athlete is that the competitive athlete, they think tactically. Um, and what I mean by tactical is that you're aware of your surroundings, you're aware of changing in terrain, you're aware of your competition. You could feel a cloud go overhead because you could feel the change in temperature. That is a tactical athlete and this coach to drive home this concept, we would do intervals and he would give us a piece of paper uh, and on that piece of paper would be a math equation. And here you were, you were tired. You were fatigued from the fitness, not from sleep, but from the fitness, the workout. And to do simple equations in your head under fatigue um, was impossible. Now, what's interesting is like, I could sit and I think back on those days and I couldn't solve these math problems but the math problems were simple. It's like taking, if you're running a, a 640 mile and you're at two hours and 47 minutes, when would, what, what time would the clock say um, when you finish the mile? Well, it's 640 plus 247. Well, you can't do that in your head when you're tired. Simple now. And that's the thing is that what he was driving home is, is that under fatigue, you're unable to think tactically. Well, the same thing holds true with your sleep at night. You don't recognize it until you're actually in the situation. And then it turns upside down. And that's the hardest part is that you have to recognize in the situation because when you're sitting there, it's like, oh, you know what? I'm going to go run errands instead of sleep because I only have, you know, X amount of time. But when you get into that situation, that's where the regret comes in because you can't think tactically. And a firefighter must think tactically when they're in that fire. But under fatigue, it's just not that easy. And that's what I learned from way back, you know, back in my college days is, you know what? It's time to live on my own. It's time to get out of that party scene. If I want to become good at the sport of triathlons, then what I need to do is I need to focus on what the coach is saying. And that is sleep is my priority so I could be tactical. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. It's funny when you talk about the mental arithmetic, that is exactly what 
we're required to do. I would say probably the most extreme example of that is pediatric medications. Yeah. So we'll have a, you know, a five year old and we've got to work out not only, you know, the volume, but actually how much drug is in that syringe and break it down. And, you know, it, it's, there's some, ins- there's some craziness to, to that being a thing in the first place. I had a, a guest on Dr. Antevi who basically came up with a system to remove that mental math, but that's it. You're taking these people who, you're asking them to do incredible things under incredible stress, and then the average office worker is working forty hours, and you're you're getting these people to work almost two full days more. Um, it it's found its way there, I think, through the history of the fire service. But we are definitely at you know, hopefully, a paradigm shift where people realize, well, okay, this this sleep <laughs> that that our forefathers had no problem getting at the firehouse because they would just running fires and it was you know twice a week maybe that they went on a call that's not the fire service of today and and and, you know lives are at stake not only the 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 responders but the people that we're serving as well yeah i mean that's what makes it very difficult is in those situations it's very dynamic it's 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 all over the place and i can't imagine where yeah those situations because when you come into it, they're always going to be different. That's the thing about competing that is, it's it's vastly different than uh, firefighting. Because in competition, the start is always the same. And so you're able to create a protocol to manage the fear at the start. It's always going to be three, two, one, go. The event may be different. But the, the focus in the beginning for these athletes is the same. You know, you never think about, you know, with, with, with a minute remaining, like in the Ironman. The Ironman, you do 1,500 people start in the ocean at the same time. It's a nerve-wracking experience for a lot of people. But the thing about it is, is that the start is always the same. Meaning all I'm going to do is that it's going to count down. It's going to say three, two, one. And all I'm going to do is think about my first 10 strokes. How am I going to do my first 10 strokes? Just 10 strokes. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. By the time I get to 10, everything else will now be sorted. It will all be sorted. Just think about the start. But in your profession, that's the problem is that it's dynamic. It's always different. Always. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Chris, I've really appreciated your perspective. I just want to end with a few closing questions. Sure. Before we, and we will definitely talk about capacity ward and aerobic capacity and where people can find those. But um, the first one I always ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be about what we've discussed or something completely different. You know, so what's interesting is that I do a lot of reading. I spend one day a week and I read a lot of research. Um, I should go into my other room. I have a whole ton. Um, 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 um. Yeah, not really. I, 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 you know, the thing is, is that I'm more into research these days. Um, I do a lot of research, um, journals, publications, and that to me is where, you know, I, I get my buzz from. Um, I, I, I'm more into specific areas than, than in general areas. Um, that being said, I've, I've done a lot of, of, of I, I bought a book recently about grip strength. Um, 
just in terms of looking at grip and the importance of grip and how building capacity in the grip. Um, grip is a unique area in the sense that that you know the 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 pump in the forearms restricts blood flow and and I'm curious on on the way in which climbers improve capacity in the grip and and especially building muscular endurance in a restricted amount of area. Um, but I'd write, so to answer your question, I, it's, I spend my time on research. I really do. I learn from, from four areas. I learn from other coaches. I learn from talking with other athletes. I test workouts on other athletes and then I read scientific journals. Um, and that's where I do it. I, I read a lot of those. Brilliant. And po- yeah. And podcasts. Excellent. All right, William, that's a, that's a great answer. So same question. Um, what about a movie and or a documentary? So for me, the, the, the documentary that I just watched on um, Solo, the free climb, um, was truly incredible to me. You know, so I, I, I was once brought out to Red Bull and um, – uh, they were interested in bringing me on board, you know, in, in terms of athlete assessment. I'm, I'm pretty good at assessing athletes' strengths and weaknesses and, and limitations and ability to, to become great at their particular sport. Um, and I was interested in the things that, that they were doing because I thought that, that wow, wouldn't it be something – to work with Red Bull and imagine the, the the database that they have in terms of protocols in training of athletes. Uh, and at that time, I was kind of into Winhoffs, you know, and breathing and doing a six-minute breath hold and all of that. Um, but imagine Baumgarten when he's about to jump from the 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 edge of the atmosphere. Imagine how do you train an athlete to do that, knowing that they're going to die? Like how how is it possible? And Red Bull knows. And that was the thing about you know the 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 solo and climbing without ropes was was how is it possible that you are prepping to to do that knowing? And it was it was captivating for me for the first time to see how an athlete would do it knowing there's a probability that they're going to die. That to me is what's exciting. How are you able to control that fear and to get to the place where you are genuinely not afraid? Yeah, it's, it's incredible because I, I, I watched the film as well and, and it kind of mirrors what you were saying. Alex uh, Hanold, when he talks about it on the film, it's like, because I did it so many times, I knew I could do it. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that I, 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 and I've spoken to a lot of athletes like Matt Fraser's parents, they were Olympic level figure skaters. And the dad, you know, I'd love to talk to him because he he told me that when he would visualize his routine, his let's say his routine was five minutes, he would visualize it and start a stopwatch. And when he was done visualizing it, his goal was the clock should say five minutes. And that's the thing is like what I've learned, you know, in watching that movie was through repetition, through visualization, but through practice over and over and over, 
that fear was removed. And what was so interesting, even though I am around elite level athletes all the time, I was on the edge of my seat watching the end of that movie. I'm thinking, even though I know this guy lives, this guy is not going to make it. And that, that, that to me is incredible that, that that movie was able to portray such a, a level of fear in the audience. And it shows that I'm nowhere remotely close to that level. If you're afraid in watching that movie, you're not a tactical athlete in the sport of rock climbing. Yeah. No, and it's funny, people, when it first came out, that people didn't know if he survived. You know, I've, I've heard, you know, people saying that they were literally screaming at the TV. <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah. Um, you know, so obviously later on, as he got more famous after that movie, people knew ahead of time. But yeah, I mean, it is, it's just, I don't think anyone could watch it without just holding their breath towards the end. Yeah, that to me is like the ultimate of what, and, and that was what my appeal was at, with Red Bull was, you know, how do you prepare athletes knowing that that there is a very high probability they're going to die? And and that that to me is the ultimate form of 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 tactical preparation. Absolutely. Yeah. Travis Pastrana is another one I'd love to get on one day because, I mean, the things he does on on a motorbike again, you look at it like how do how do you practice for that? How do you practice jumping you know, onto the MGM Grand. <laughs> like, what's the, what's the, you know, the build up to that? So yeah, I mean, the the, right, the just mindset. That, just, yeah, just that jump alone on the MGM. I mean, just that. But I mean, that's the thing is that it's doing things that are that have never been done before. And so the difference of 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 free climbing like that, like you're able to practice it over and over on rope. But when you're jumping up on, you know. Yeah, on the motorcycle like that, on the, you know the tower, it's like that's never been done. Now they could rig it, but you still have to do it live. And like Baumgart jumping, I mean, to me that is, however they do that, um, that 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 to me is that's the holy grail. It is. It's fascinating. That's why what yeah, that's why what Red Bull is doing. You know, and they hold that all captive to themselves. What a, a machine that they have. And, you know, the sporting world does not recognize that. But, you know, everything from auto racing to, to you know, mountain biking to, you know, skiing, it's they've got that database and they've got that 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 package. Yeah. Actually, I listened to um, one of the podcasts where they, they feature the war between two brands. And it, I think it was Monster and Red Bull. And that was kind of Red Bull's thing really was once they latched onto the extreme sports, you know, that, that became their, their thing. And, and seeing like you talking about the, the science behind that relationship now is fascinating. Yeah, it comes, yeah, that, that, that mental side. And that's where like tactical athletes, they're, they're, they're in a similar situation and, and where, where that, that fear is real and, you can't just ignore it. It just has to be where, you know what? I'm so confident because I've done it so many times and I'm on autopilot. Exactly. And that's what's yeah. beautiful, you know, factoring back into what we were talking about earlier with Capacity Ward is if you're listening to this, I mean, all of us need to do more. There's not a first responder or, or a member of the military on the planet doesn't need to train more. But if you found yourself 
way behind than than understanding that you know the the more you train the more you get back to where you should be the more you, you the less fear there should be when you find yourself in that area um yep. well we've discussed you know some great people already but uh, one of my other questions is always is there a person you recommend to come on this pa- podcast as a guest to speak to the first responder and military of the world um so have so Matt Chan, have you spoken with Matt Chan? Yeah, we're actually friends now. Yeah, he's been on twice. So I had oh, him has. on oh, very good. early on in the podcast and then um we've connected a lot since then. He came on again not too long ago. You should have Rich Froning on. Have you had him on? I've tried. Uh, I would love to have him on. Um I totally understand how busy he is. Um but yeah, I mean obviously when you think of the words CrossFit and Firefighter, Rich is definitely the one, the name that pops into your mind as well. Yeah, have you had Ron Ortiz on? I have had Ron, yes. Yeah, I, I think that Rich, you know, the thing that, that that's interesting about Rich and, and maybe you just you, you keep it short with him because he is busy, but he's got such an incredible, I mean, he's like the whole package. He's got an exor- a degree in exercise science. He's arguably the, the fittest athlete ever to be, you know, hit mankind. And um, he's very, very experienced in, in the world of firefighting. And I think that that combination is very unique. Um, I, I don't have hands-on experience in firefighting. And so what I have to do is I have to learn and listen from talking to other and reading, but that, that practical side of things is important. And what's interesting about Rich is that he is an expert in movement. Um, with the exception of the programming I provide, Rich, he does it all himself. And somehow, in some way, he is able to prepare for the unknown and unknowable better than anybody else for the last eight years in the sport of CrossFit. And that's a gift. And he just, he's that good. I mean, he really is genuinely that good. And, you know, I've been lucky enough to to be around a lot of smart athletes, but there's not anyone that that is at his level. There's just not, especially in in the tactical side. Yeah. Well, I would love to, If I don't know if you're able to, to help me, but I mean, I think that would be a great conversation. I'll, I'll let him know. I mean, yeah, because I know that he does his own podcast, but um, it would be interesting to, to have him talk to you because i think that's one of the areas that that would be a benefit is is you know these 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 other communities that are looking for solutions and that's something that rich can provide that's why matt chan is really good and ron ortiz is really good is because they're able to provide a solution and directly apply it within you know the community of firefighting because of their 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 practical experience. Yeah, exactly. And another one I'd love to get one day. We, we actually had communication that it, and it fell apart. I, I don't know. In the world of emails, I mean, I see ridiculous emails go to my junk file that have no business yeah. being there. But uh, Miko Salo is another one. Not only the firefighter side, but just the fact that he's from Finland as well, I think would be a unique perspective. Yeah, really good. And coaching background, I think that he would be really good. Um yeah, I, I, I think, um, you know, who would be an amazing, have you spoken with Freddie Camacho, China Cho's husband? Um, you know what? I have not. And I think, is, is it Freddie that lives in South Florida? 
No, he lives in Fremont, California. Okay, then no, I'm thinking of the wrong person. So no, I haven't. You know what? He uh, he would be a great great guest. He's he's incredibly articulate. He um, just retired um, from the SWAT. Um, served a whole career, um, but very funny. Um, been involved in CrossFit from the beginning. Uh, his his gym that he had way back when. Matter of fact, he was a guy that I looked up to um, when I started CrossFit in 2008. And um, yeah, he's he's really good. And he's got a lot of very good stories with practical application um, on the police side of the equation. Excellent. Well, I would definitely, yeah. definitely would love to get him on as well then. I'll, I'll, I'll send you, I'll send you his number. Brilliant. Thank you so yeah, much. He, yeah, he'd be good. He'd be really good. Brilliant. All right. So then the last question before we discuss all the areas that you're involved with and how people can find those, what do you do to decompress when you're not coaching? You know, I, 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 I honestly, and I know it sounds bad, but I, I love to program workouts. It's very cathartic for me. Um, it's almost like a puzzle. Like, you know, people do Sudoku and, and crossword puzzles and play, you know, hearts on their phone. Writing workouts is, it's, it's almost peaceful. And I get into this rhythm of doing it. And um, yeah, it's a strange thing. And, and I like doing it in spaces, you know, such as like, I just, I'm doing one for um, someone who's on the PGA tour and writing out progressions. And it's, it's, not even feeling like work. It's, it's a fun thing. Um, but the other thing that I do is I travel, you know, we do a lot of seminars around the world. And, and like I said, before we went on the air with here, um, I was just in 10 countries, came back for four days and then went down to Brazil for a week. Um, I travel a lot. And, you know, when I did the sport of triathlons, the mistake I made when I traveled is I never saw the community that I visited. And I don't make that mistake now. I always allocate some time uh, to soak in the the local flavor. Um, and, and that is very enjoyable. I'm able to travel and do that with my wife. And, um, you know, she's part of the business and matter of fact, organizes all the seminars that I do. And so that is that's very enjoyable for me, and I'm super lucky to be able to do it. I've said this a lot um, in the past. Coming from England, I, I've traveled a decent amount. I mean, I'm not like a, a globetrotter or anything, but it's amazing how traveling can dispel so many of the prejudices and fallacies that you are taught if you just stay in one country your whole life. I know. It that's why it's like with my kids, the same thing. It's, it's important that you go out and, and recognize the value of what you have. You know, we are, uh, we're so, I, I was telling somebody when I was down in Brazil, they were talking about like, what's the most valuable thing that I, you know, like that I have. And I, it was immediate. I said, it's my passport. I love the fact that I am a U.S. citizen. I love our country. And I think that that you get perspective when you travel. You realize how fortunate we are to be able to live here and, you know, the opportunity that is is all around us. And you don't get that perspective unless you you go out and, and experience other communities. Um, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm very grateful. Um, 
that I'm a U.S. citizen and be able to to live here. And I got that perspective by going out and visiting other communities. Yeah, I think another thing of traveling is, is you know, you can be so proud of your nation, but also say, well, hey, you know, Finland's doing this with their schools. This would be a really good thing for us to to bring back to the U.S. You know, Portugal. Well, yep, that's why I do all of my courses. So, you know, I. I I can certainly have, you know, people, others do my course, but part of it is, is that I want to know what's going on in the communities. What are they working on? And that's where you get the ideas from. You know, in my seminars, I give away all of my information, everything. And, you know, people have asked before, it's like, wow, you give away everything. Like you're holding no intellectual property, nothing. And my feeling is, is that, yeah, that forces me to go out and keep learning and finding new things and more advanced things and and continue driving in a more advanced direction. Um, the other thing is, is I believe my intellectual property is the way in which I write workouts. That's really where I think that 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 my value is. But yeah, I, I believe the same thing as you. Like you have to visit because that's where you learn. You learn new ideas. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then with what you're doing with your intellectual property, it's the same with the podcast. I know there's people that you have to subscribe and there's Patreon. To me, you know, there's a relationship now with, with you know, some sponsors that are helping, you know, pay for the, the, the podcast to exist. But I want these to all be free. So if, you know, a, a, a firefighter in Nepal wants to learn about Chris Hinshaw's perspective on his training, he just has to have an internet connection. That's it. And I love that. You know, we should be sharing. Of course, we have bills to pay and there has to be a way of doing that. But, you know, I, I think that philosophy of trying to make the world better. And if you keep everything in your little secret box, you're not adding to the solution. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is like for me, I agree with you. I, I give a lot of things away. Um, matter of fact, there's not one games athlete that has ever paid me anything. Zero. Even when I travel to see him, I pay all of my own expenses. Um, and a lot of that is coming from the gratitude of one CrossFit coming into my life and making me healthy again from all the damage that the sport of triathlons did. But it's also part of, of, of providing the community content, free content. Um, you know, like your listeners that, that are interested and they just want to see a sampling of workouts. I mean, they could email me at info at aerobiccapacity.com and I'll send them a sample of workouts so they could see. I always tell people that I meet, if you want to get something and better understand what another coach is doing, write them, send them a note and ask them, can you send me a sampling of what you provide, what you talk about so I could better understand it before I want to sign up, before I want to make any commitment. And there is no question the great coaches will give it to you because we have it available. I have thousands of workouts. It's easy for me to just say, oh, here's a couple of ideas. Here you go. Here's some ideas. Because for me, one, that's part of giving back into the community. And number two is I get it. Why would someone want to jump into something without seeing it? Write the coach that you're interested in and ask them for a sampling of those workouts and they'll give them to you for free because that's what we do. We write workouts and I have no problem in putting my workouts out there because you know what? I just keep writing new ones. Here you go. 
Excellent. All right. Well, then speaking of, of the platforms to find workouts, so your website's aerobiccapacity.com. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So tell me what's up, what's on that specific one. Then we'll talk about capacity wad. So at aerobiccapacity.com, uh, I have online programming uh, that builds up capacity in the movement of running. Um, running is one of the top movements that um, builds capacity um, in your structure that supports your weight. Um, I do have other programs that are coming out, uh, rowing and riding a bike, but the number one movement without a doubt is running. And so that's what I focused my time on early on as a coach. Um, the other thing that I offer in there is a variety of seminars, camps, clinics. Uh, I just finished a uh, pretty cool tour uh, with Matt Frazier in Europe. Uh, we did six two-hour master classes. Um, and so I do that as well with other athletes um, from time to time. So there's two basic things that are in there, the seminars and the, uh, the ability to sign up to online programming. Excellent. Now, um, the, the five-minute blocks that we were talking about earlier falls under the capacity ward umbrella. So tell me how people can find that. So you can go to sugarwad.com into their marketplace and look for capacity wad. Um, it's $5 a month, uh, and you get a different workout every single day. Um, if your community is, is uh, interested in a sampling uh, they can certainly go to Capacity Wad on Instagram and look at a sampling of those types of workouts to see exactly what's being offered. Again, those workouts fall into the category of the movement like we just talked about, the push-up. It would be five rounds, 12 seconds of max reps of push-ups, 48 seconds of floor press nice and slow with the PVC, no rest between your, your sets or reps. And if you're um, community is interested in something specific for firefighting and, and they can go ahead and just email at uh, info at aerobiccapacity.com and I'll send a sampling of workouts. Like I said, if, if your community is interested in workouts, just find the email address to the coach, send the coach. And if the coach doesn't reply back with free samplings, then that's probably not a program you want to sign up for. Absolutely. Well, and just for everyone listening as well, if you follow Capacity Wad on Instagram and then go to the link in their bio, I found that was actually the quickest way of getting to Sugar Wad. When you go yep. when you Google it, it didn't pull it up initially. But uh, so yeah, and then as you said, the the hanging from the bar and then the the farmers, you know, dumbbell carry was yep. was on there, and and so yeah, definitely. There's super, a lot in there. Yeah. yeah, and if you want some other ones, you feel free. Like I said, you could pop me a note and. Um, I can send you some that are specific to firefighting. Like I said, it's an area for me that is of significant interest. Um, I'm alarmed by what's happening within that community. And uh, not that I have the, the perfect solution. I'm still talking to, like, for example, today, you, to find more efficient and effective ways, but I do know the movement patterns that are required and I know the movement patterns on dry land. And what I'm doing is focusing on improving those, 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 let's call them athletes in that profession, the ability to, to improve the rate of recovery and muscular stamina so that they're safer in that job. Brilliant. Well, and you're doing that that project with Dave Durante and Chad Vaughan. Chad was already on the show, and Dave is coming on. 
Um, Brilliant guys, man. I mean, Chad, Olympian weightlifter. I'm so fortunate to be able to, and then work with them and then Dave Durrani and Olympian gymnast. And so that's where we've got the spectrum of movement covered. And, you know, you always want to look at who's involved and we're athletes. I mean, that's the direction where we come from. And, and it would be different if I've not have been able to do that type of a thing before. Not only was I not, I was, I was always able to do it, but I can still do it all today. Same thing with Dave and Chad. Um, I once saw Dave Durante do a freestanding handstand hold while checking email for five <laughs> minutes, for five minutes on his phone. And that's the thing is that I feel really confident in the workouts that we are riding on capacity wad because of the skill set that we're bringing to the table. Um, the number one thing that we always have to remember is that, you know, there's a lot of options out there. There's a ton. It's confusing. And what I wanted to do, and Dave and Chad, same thing, is that we wanted to provide content that undeniably was the best out there. It was the most efficient and effective way. And it's because of the background that we have, uh, the educational and athletic background um, that I feel so confident about saying that. And so, yeah, I strongly encourage like your community to take a look. And if they have questions, you know what? Just send notes. You can send them through Instagram. Um, and we're happy to help and, and provide ideas because, like I said, we're experts in the writing of workouts and we've got a lot of them. And if you want a sampling them for your firehouse, send in a note. I'll send you some. Brilliant. All right. Then the last thing that you guys do, I want to make sure we cover as well for people that really want to deep dive into, into the movement under you know, the three of you. I know Ron Ortiz is, is uh, part of this as well is the power monkey camp. I personally want to try and attend as soon as I can, but if you just want to tell people what that is and, and how often the, you know, it, it occurs. So the power monkey camp is a camp that is held in Crossville, Tennessee, which is about almost two hours drive east of Nashville. Um, it meets every May and October. Uh, there's roughly 90 campers, about 40 coaches. Uh, the coaches are, in my opinion, the best coaches in their, res their respective space in the community today. Uh, the format of the camp, it's a week long. Um, you stay on site, you're, ca you're captive. It is a uh, USA Gymnastics uh, facility that they convert to hold this camp uh, for a six-week period of time, like I said, every May and every October. Um, you get breakfast, lunch, and dinner from Rosie Joe Meals. It's amazing meals um, that are provided. And then what happens is you're broken up into groups between 10 and 12 people per group. And you migrate through a series of two hour stations. Each station specializes in a particular type of, of activity. Um, I have an endurance station. We have 14 air runners and 14 assault bikes. Um, there's several weightlifting stations. There's a several gymnastic stations, there's a rowing station, jump rope station, uh, kettlebells, 
you name it, it's covered. It is without a doubt one of the most inclusive weeks of fitness that you'll ever experience. The best part is, is that it's for everybody. It's not elite level athletes that are there. Um, matter of fact, the last camp that we did in October was over 60% women um, attending. Um, it's really about the recreational athlete that's trying to find a more efficient and effective way to improve their fitness and their and or their gym or athletes fitness that they work with. It's awesome. It is without a doubt one of the two highlights that I participate in every year. Um, it's something I've, I've done now. So I'm over I've done over 10. I think I'm on my 11th one. Um, and every time it just gets better and better. It's run by Dave Durrani and uh, his expectations in terms of quality and the experience that's being provided is, is, is world-class. Yeah. I, I really hope that you get the chance to go. It is, you know how like sometimes you recommend something and like a movie and then people go and see it and it's like, Oh, it wasn't as good as they said. This, I could recommend it and I can sing its praises all day long and it's going to exceed your expectations. It's that good. Yeah. No, it, it looks amazing. I've seen, um, as I said, Ron and some other people post about it. And yeah, I think that that immersive retreat seems to be such a great format, whether it's physical health, mental health, you know, meditation, whatever it is, just to be taken away from the, the hustle and bustle of your life and just be given a, an immersive, fun environment to to do something different for a week. And the coaches are all captive. So you're having breakfast and, you know, you've got Chad Vaughn sitting across from you. And they're right there. It's not like you have these two-hour sessions and that's all you get. You get a tremendous amount because you're there with them all week long. And so – yeah, I always encourage people that are going, come in prepared, like bring a series of questions and sit down and, and, and dive into some detail about you, an athlete, you coach, your gym. And um, that's what people do. You know, they, they, they come fully equipped because you're not going to get, you know, an hour of free time with Chris Hinshaw um, where you can ask one-on-one -on -one questions. That's the format. I mean, that's the outline that Dave Durrani tells all of the coaches. Your job is to be prepared every time you're with the campers to support whatever requirements that they have in terms of improving their camp experience. Well, it sounds amazing. Like I said, I'm looking forward to it. And also just to sit down with the three of you face-to-face -face would be great too. Because trust me, I have questions, <laughs> so, <laughs> as you can tell. All right. Well, Chris, I've got to let you go. It's been well over two hours. I just thank you so much for such a, a fantastic conversation and to have, you know, such a high level coach draw so many parallels with, with my community has been uh, just so valuable. So thank you so, so much. Uh, I appreciate it too. I, you know, I, I, I've really been excited about coming on to this podcast with you. You've done amazing work product and, and to be a part of you know, your catalog of podcasts, it's, it's an honor and a privilege. And, and again, thank you. I just, what a great two hours. I can't even believe it was two hours. <laughs> it's flown <Wow>. by. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Well, that's the sign that you did good. Real good. Thank you. Thank you.